Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Darby Butts. But before we get to Darby, I have a few announcements to make. First of all, welcome to 2020. I'm back to making new episodes, recording new episodes. This is the first one that was recorded this year. The ones preceding this in January were recorded uh, before I left town on my five-week journey, four weeks working cruise ships, and one in Colombia. But I'll get to that later. But first, I have a few announcements to make. First and foremost, uh, TravelTalesPodcast.com is our website. Go there. You can see photos of our guests. You can see stories that I've written, stories that some of the guests have written. You can see links to all our guests' social media and links to our social media. And by that, I mean, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page. Please give us a follow and a like on all those platforms. And there are links to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio, where you can subscribe to this show for free. And as always, I ask if you can do it, please give us a good recommendation because that helps people find the show by boosting our presence there. And that's a cool thing for you to do. And if you'd like to write me, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, back to Darby Butts. Darby was a guy I met climbing Kilimanjaro. He was in my group back in early 2014, I believe. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was a while ago. And since then, we've only kept track of each other on Facebook and other forms of social media. And I could see from there he was getting around the world traveling through the Amazon, through Asia, and the capper of them all, spending a year at the South Pole. Yeah, you heard that right. A year at the South Pole. So naturally, we talk about that a lot. But I saw Darby after I got off the cruise ship in Curacao, and I looked at the map, and I went, boy, before I left, I looked at the map, and I said, that's really close to South America, you know, just north of the coast of Venezuela. And uh, I had been meaning to go to Colombia for a long time. And I knew Darby was living in Medellin, or Medellin as the locals call it. And I decided to just uh, go to Medellin for a week and hang out and check it out. I'd never been to Colombia, never been to Medellin. So I wanted to see it, heard a lot about it, especially from this show of digital nomads and everything living there. I knew it was a fast-growing, popular South American city, and I wanted to see it. Plus, I would get to see Darby again. And Darby is a partner in a brew pub down there, a big place, called 20 Mission Cerveza. They make their own beers. It's a, it's a brewery slash gastro pub, I guess it would be. They have live music and entertainment. I had a great meal there. And we talk about the food a bit because uh, I got to be honest, the food in Colombia was a little disappointing. Yeah, we, we were gonna, you'll hear about it on in this interview. <laughs> but uh, not at Darby's place. Darby's a chef, and he makes sure that the food is good, and it, I had probably one of my best meals. I definitely had one of my best meals I had all week down there, and it was delicious. So go to 20 Mission Cerveza if you're ever in Medellin. 
And Darby gives his uh, email and information at the end of this interview because he's a very helpful resource if you're ever going down that way. He's lived there for three years, and he's learned a lot about it. He's watched the city grow, and he has uh, a lot of great advice. So he's a good resource to, uh, to tap into if you're ever thinking of going down there. So after having many beers and some awesome food the night before at 20 Mission Cerveza, I went back the next day and sat in Darby's office, and he and I had this conversation. It was great catching up with him. I enjoyed talking to him, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it. Here's my chat with Darby Butts. Darby Butts, thank you for uh, joining me, and thank you for hosting me last night, and thank you for helping me out in my trip to Columbia, because I had no idea what the hell I was doing and where I was staying, and it's great to see you again, man. Yeah, you too. You too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a while, I guess. What? Last time was just about six years ago, almost. Yeah. I believe that was six years. Flies. So, for people who don't know, and I'll explain it if you hadn't uh, read it already, in uh, the description of the show, Darby and I did uh, Kilimanjaro together. We climbed Kilimanjaro together in, well, six years ago, in February of 2014. And uh, since then, you have had quite a journey. So, you're originally from uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Is that it? And tell me where you've been since. Oh, man. So, let's see. Uh, met you in Africa in 2014 from Annapolis, Maryland. Um, after that, my trip in 2015 was to Ecuador. Uh, spent two weeks checking in the Amazon. That was good. As you know, I, you know, I always traveled a lot. I would take like a month off every year to travel. And after Africa, it was Ecuador. After Ecuador, I realized I'd been to five continents Figured I might as well try to get to all seven. So then in October of 2015, uh, I left Annapolis for good, and I went to the South Pole, Antarctica, and I was there for a year. Since then, let's see, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, Nepal, um, Dubai, Amsterdam, stopped back in the U.S., saw mom for Christmas, and then uh, moved down to Medellin, Colombia. And I've been here for the last three years. See, now you said it the American way, Medellin. And then I got here and I found out it's Medellin. So how long did it... Do you still make that mistake? Or are we, who's wrong and who's right here? I guess they're right because it's their place. Yeah, they, they are right. And they are proud enough to tell you that they're right and that you are wrong. Uh, really, in, in Spanish, the double L has a Y pronunciation. But... Um, specifically in Colombia and even more specifically in the Antioquia region where Medellin is, the, the double L goes more from a Y into a J. So myself, when I'm in Colombia and I'm speaking Spanish and I'm dealing with, with locals, I say Medellin. But then when I'm talking to other travelers or people coming to visit, I usually switch back to the Medellin because that's more uh, the way it's pronounced worldwide. Okay, we can't gloss over the fact. I know people are like backtracking on what you said and said, wait a minute, South Pole for a year? How the hell does that happen? And how did you set that up? And what, what the hell were you doing down there? Were you at the Amundsen Station? Yeah, so let's see how it happened. Um, you know, every, like I said, every year I would take a month off for traveling. And I would get back and I'd be happy for a year. And then the next year I'd be happy for nine months. And then the next year I'd be happy for six months. 
And literally, when I got back from Africa, I was happy for about three months. So I planned the trip to the Amazon, got back from there, and it took about three weeks before I knew I just had to go. So like I said, I wanted to get to all seven continents. And um, I figured, I started researching Antarctica, and I found out that for me to go there as a tourist and like really go there and, um, for example, getting to the South Pole as a tourist, the starting price on that's about $50,000. Wow. And uh, so I knew that was never going to happen. But I figured if there's research bases there, and my background is as a chef, people have to eat. So I literally Googled Chef Jobs Antarctica. Uh, after a whole bunch of research, I found out that the U.S. government has the National Science Foundation, which has the United States Antarctic Program, which then has the Antarctic Support Contract. At the time, um, that was held by Lockheed Martin. So I tracked them down and then found their subcontractors that provided food services. Uh, then I went through a lengthy interview process. It involved, I think, six interviews. Uh, they flew me out to Denver for a panel interview. Then there was a physical evaluation and a psychiatric evaluation, at which point, at the end of all that, I secured the contract for the summer and winter seasons to be the food services supervisor, as well as the executive chef at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station. Well, how many people are down there, and what was the interview process like in terms of do they do like astronaut training where they make you like put you in a room and see if you freak out and play all this weird noise and stuff, or just you have a did they, is it like well you you have to be alone a lot are you okay with isolation and all that? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that. Uh, a lot of it is about sort of figuring out different people's personalities because once you get everybody down there, there's no getting out. Uh, you asked how many people. There's the three and a half month summer season where they're bringing in supplies and scientists are coming in and out, and there's a population of about 150 people. After that, the base shuts down for eight and a half months. At that time, there's around 50 people, and you are stuck there, isolated in the most remote place on planet Earth, and there is no leaving. Uh, in fact, six months of that time is complete darkness. So the psychiatric evaluation is to make sure that mentally you're going to be able to handle it. Uh, all the interviews are to see how well you will deal with being in a very mixed group of people. I mean, for, for our winter, there were 48 people. And you have electricians, you have plumbers, you have dishwashers, and then you have some of the most brilliant scientific minds on the planet. And all those people have to figure out how to get along. It's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like an episode of Survivor, but taken to the most extreme you can imagine without actually leaving the planet. It's like you're on a spaceship, really. I mean, you got to, you're in a capsule or like the Skylab or something like that. Is, are they doing uh, research? Is it like climate-based research mostly now? Yeah, so um, it, it is almost like being in outer space. Actually, uh, if you're on the International Space Station, you're closer to human civilization than if you're at the South Pole. It's literally that remote. Um, and yeah, so the science, there is uh, uh, climate, climate research, um, and then there's projects even, there's a telescope down there that looks back, they detect um, these particles that basically are from the Big Bang. And so there's research projects down there where they are literally looking back to the very origins of our universe and how our universe as we know it was created from the beginning. So there's everything from that to researching the ozone layer, uh, climate change, and all sorts of crazy stuff. What is the demographic makeup in terms of uh, countries? Is it, people, is it an international crew, or is it mostly Americans? 
the only base at the South Pole is the Amundsen Scott Research Station, which is a U.S. base. So it is mainly uh, U.S. citizens, but through uh, through different grants, there are people from other countries. Uh, there was a couple of Germans. Uh, our doctor was from New Zealand. Um, and I believe there was also uh, an Austrian guy there. But for the most part, it's, it's all Americans. Okay, now we're talking about six months of darkness. Uh, how did you handle that? Because I know mentally, when, even when I work in Alaska, I mean, it, it wears on you. I mean, there, it's, I do the opposite. I do the summer up there, and it's, you know, light all the time. And that messes it up, you know, sleeping especially. So how do you deal with darkness? Because it gets really depressing, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's, it's, it's very difficult, you know. And like you said, during the summer season, the sun is up 24 hours a day for six months. I mean, at the South Pole, you have one day and one night per year. And that'll mess with you, uh, you know. Yeah. It's three in the morning, you go outside and it's completely bright out and, and that's nuts. But yeah, then it gets dark and um, it'll, it, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, you deal with it as best you can. Going outside is amazing because there's the, uh, the Southern Lights, the Auroras. Uh, down there's the Aurora Australis, which is just amazing. I mean, it's the clearest skies anywhere on the planet. So you can see the Milky Way, you can see this, the Southern Lights, it's, it's beautiful. But yeah, to pass the time, you know, you're, you're playing pool, playing darts. Uh, they have alcohol there. Uh-huh, sure. that, uh, that can be a decent coping mechanism. <laughs> it can also cause Problem. some problems. Yeah. You know, you trap 48 people inside of a building. Outside, the weather is negative, easily down to negative 100. The coldest day that we had was negative 107.6 Fahrenheit. That's without the wind chill. Wait, say that again. Negative 107.6 Fahrenheit without the wind chill. With the wind chill, it's, it goes past negative 150. Wow. So this is, this is really like being in space. I mean, you can't go out to do anything. Did you have to go outside and brave it at some point? Do you have to put on like a, little, a literal spacesuit? Yeah, so uh, I actually went outside every day. Um, and before you go outside, you have to get fully dressed in uh, what is called your extreme cold weather gear. And you cannot have any exposed skin. Um, you have to concentrate on your breathing and do breathing exercises before you go outside. Because if that cold shocks you and you breathe too deeply, you'll literally freeze your lungs. And obviously that can kill you. Any exposed skin, you'll get frostbite within minutes. Uh, it, is, it, it is very dangerous going outside. The longest, in the dead of winter, the longest I was able to endure being outside was about an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, at that point, you can't feel your fingers or your toes. You can barely, you can barely speak. Um, you're drained out of energy, and it's, uh, it, gets, it gets pretty scary at that point. God. So I'm going to ask you the question that probably every guy asked you. Uh, is there any women down there? Uh, during our winter, there were nine females with us, yes. Okay. Uh, how about Netflix? <laughs> and how's the Wi-Fi? <laughs> it's uh it's brutal there is no wi-fi oh. there is no wi-fi and because you're on the bottom of the planet you can only connect to a satellite for about eight to nine hours a day and the reason you can connect to it is because it is um old military satellites that are no longer in use and what happens is they start to fall out of orbit so um even though you can't see what i'm doing with my hands right now because this is an audio recording <laughs> it starts to oscillate like this and like a wave pattern. Yeah, it starts to, instead of going around the equator, it starts to oscillate like a wave pattern. And when it dips low enough, 
you can get you can get a direct connection from the south pole to that satellite and so during that low point in the traverse of the satellite you can get a connection but like i said this is an old decommissioned military satellite from the 70s so you basically have what amounts to dial-up internet um, you can't load facebook you can check emails you can load the mobile version of facebook because it uses a lot less data but you're not uploading pictures, you're not downloading videos, you're not streaming podcasts, you're checking your email and maybe getting a little bit of the news, uh, which, you know, at the time I was there wasn't the best. This was... It's still not great. I mean, I, I, that's one benefit I have with working cruise ships with slow internet and just like, you know, I don't miss checking out at some time and being out of the loop. Yeah, yeah. What, the main thing that was going on when I was down there was it was the election year. Yeah. And it was all about Trump and Hillary. I actually, it was the day that I, uh, it was 10 days after I got out of Antarctica was when the election was. I was on a plane from New Zealand to Brisbane, Australia, landed there at the airport, got some free Wi-Fi, saw the election results, turned my phone off, hopped a flight to Indonesia, and just sat on the beach for a month to try to warm back up. (laughs) So what was your go-to way to fight boredom and everything else? Did you do a lot of reading? A lot of writing. What was it? I got really good at playing pool. <laughs> that was my big thing. Um, the, the two main things that I got back into, one was my old hobby of uh, being an artist, drawing and painting. So I spent a lot of time getting back into that, um, you know, old hobbies that, that I had sort of lost touch with. And then socially, it was card games, playing pool, and playing darts. Was there an experience that was ever kind of dangerous or any, uh, not necessarily to you, but to anybody down there? Was there like, did the doctor have to save somebody? Actually, uh, we did unfortunately make history during our winter. We started with 48 people. Um, Two of them became very ill. Uh, One guy had a heart attack. um, And then another woman had... um, uh, gastrointestinal issues that required immediate surgery and the guy after the heart attack he required heart surgery so we it took about three and a half weeks of planning but we pulled off for the first time in history an emergency midwinter medevac of two people from the south pole and where do you take them to like chile or or somewhere down there yep uh they first go to punta arenas chile um this involved i think six different countries uh, a plane came from Canada through the United States, down through Central America, all the way through South America to Punta Arenas, Chile. From there, it went to the British base Rothra on the Antarctic Peninsula. And then from there, when they saw a break in the weather uh, in complete darkness and pretty much nothing to go on, they were able to fly this little plane from there all the way into the center of Antarctica to the South Pole. Uh, where we had, uh, we built an ice runway. We lit it up with a mixture of uh, jet fuel and, um, and other fuels to help. It's, it's hard to ignite something in such cold temperatures, but we made a special fuel mix and literally lit drums lining the runway to light it. And they were able to get in and land. Uh, then we hooked heaters up to the plane. Um, they got their rest. We fed the pilots. They brought us some gifts, which was, which was a nice little surprise. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the middle of, of winter. At this point, we hadn't seen another person in four months. And all of a sudden, these four guys show up. And uh, Tell us anything. What's it like? What's it, what, did you, what did you do yes, yesterday? What was amazing, they, what they brought us was a case of fresh fruit. Ooh. 
which is great because at that point, you know, we have a greenhouse there. So I was able to grow greens and some vegetables. So once a week we would have a fresh salad. But besides that, everything is either canned, dried, or frozen. So when they show up with a case of oranges, you know, it, it, Christmas came early. It, it's amazing. Even, even just what it does for your senses, right? Because at the South Pole, there's no life. There are no trees. There's no dirt. There's nothing. You can smell a fresh orange from 100 yards away. I, it's, it, it, it's really an amazing experience. Well, I was going to ask you that to someone as, as the chef and everything like that. What were your options and how varied was the menu? And was it like the same every week all the time, pretty much? Uh, some things remain the same and then other things you change up. It's a balance of really a good meal at the end of the day for dinner is the only thing people have to look forward to. So on one hand, you need to give them things that they can always look forward to and count on. So every Friday was steak night and every Saturday was pizza night. And I would make pizza dough from scratch. People would put in custom orders and I would make anybody any kind of pizza they wanted. And then, uh, you know, on Friday nights, it would be we would have beef tenderloin or or uh, really nice ribeyes. And I would cook everything to order for everybody. So they always had Friday and Saturday. They always knew they were getting a good treat. And then the rest of the nights of the week, we would always just mix it up. So there'd always be something, you know, new and and creative to try. So it wouldn't get repetitive or boring or mundane. What is the, uh, like, disciplinary uh, procedure there? Say if somebody, if two people get into an argument or they're having problems, is there, like, somebody in charge? Or is there, how do you solve these issues? Is there, like, a kangaroo court or something? Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult. So there's the winter site manager, and they technically are the person in charge. Uh, where it gets difficult, though, is that all the people there are subcontracted by different companies. So technically, this person is running the station, but they work for a different company, and they're not your boss. And that creates a weird dynamic. There's also, uh, they put together a leadership group every year. Um, I was unfortunate enough to be on that because that that gets you right in the middle of everything yeah you know issues come up you want to try to resolve them in-house because you need a tight-knit community if people start calling their hr departments at the headquarters back in denver you've got these outsiders that don't understand what we're dealing with and what we're going through trying to mediate these issues so we try to resolve it all ourselves but it can get difficult because if the station manager makes a decision, somebody can then say, well, I don't agree with you and I'm going to involve my company back home. Uh, and it can get very complicated. So, so it's, uh, it's an exercise in patience. People got to realize, you know, you can get along or you can not get along, but no matter what, you're not leaving. Yeah. So, you know, which option is going to be better in the long run? So in terms of food and supplies, how often did, did, new stuff come is it like once at the start of the season and then that's it and you just let it go shining style yeah uh during during the summer season which is three and a half months supply uh planes are coming in regularly and so usually once a week you would get what we call freshies which is fresh fruits and vegetables and all that awesome stuff but they're also bringing in pallets of dry goods and canned goods and buried under the ice is a, a giant tunnel basically it's basically a warehouse but built under the ice and that is where everything's kept and everything's kept down there and it's all frozen. And so once a week you go down there and then you, you bring everything up and it takes about two weeks for anything to thaw out because of how frozen it is. And then that's what you have to work with. And you just try to do the best you can. What's the steady temperature inside the lab? Inside the station, uh, we keep it between 68 and 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, yeah, really nice and relaxed. What is it? Uh, where's the power coming from? Is it geothermal or wh- what kind of power? 
there is a power plant there that is uh, basically three giant um, uh, diesel generators. And fuel is brought in um, all during the summer season. And there are 52 fuel tanks buried under the ice. Those all get filled up. And then that's what you have to survive on through the winter. Oh, man. Okay. If there's one thing, looking back, that you, if you, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently going down there? Huh. That is a good question. Would you have brought something or, you know, prepared yourself mentally in a different way? Or I don't know. What would you have done differently? Um, you know, I really, I really can't say. I, I think I went very well prepared. And since it was my first time going, there's, there's things you're not going to be prepared for. Um, I probably would have brought a couple more small, meaningful things to have that connection to back home. That's what you miss the most. Um, I took the approach of sort of going cold turkey, leaving that behind. I, I didn't want... I didn't want to get too homesick and let that bring me down or, or get me into a depressed state. But then the deeper into the, to the time that you are, the more you start to miss it. And it would be nice if you had brought, you know, a couple more pictures of friends and family or, or some more nostalgia. Uh, I thought it could have been a handicap, but towards the end, it was really what I missed the most. How, uh, well, looking back, is there a piece of food now or an item that you refuse to look at after that year? They're like, I don't, if I never have that again... I'll be fine. Yeah, you know, luckily I was the chef. I was in charge of it, so I was able to make a pretty good go of it. Um, so I wouldn't say there's anything that I never want to see again, but I can tell you that uh, what I missed the most was fresh seafood. Oh, fresh yeah. seafood, especially being from Maryland. Uh -huh. You know, having... Oh, the first time that I got crab and oysters and, and you know, and, and fresh fish, that was, that was amazing. That was amazing. Okay. What did your family think of all this, and how often did you get a chance to talk to them? So I thought that uh, I thought my mom was going to tell me I was completely insane because um, I kind of have a track record of getting her to the point of telling me that I'm completely. Yeah, I, I think maybe you primed her for this your entire life, maybe. Yeah, you know, I'd been talking to her for years about how one day I would quit my job and go travel the world for the rest of my life. And she always thought I was crazy. And then I'd come up with ideas of how I was going to do it, and she would think that those were crazy. When I sat her down to tell her that I had gotten this job and I had accepted the position, she was actually extremely proud of me and thought that it was a wonderful opportunity and a great accomplishment. I thought she would think it's completely insane. Who the hell wants to go to the bottom of the planet to the most remote and dangerous place in the world and just live there for a year? Um, but because of its foundations in, in, in scientific research and, and, and the meaning of what people down there are trying to accomplish, uh, she was actually very supportive. Well, you're only one of a few, you know, a small group of people that can ever say they were there, you know, and uh, it's a really unique thing, almost like astronauts, you know, <laughs> there's only like a certain number of them and then that's it. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible story. I mean, looking back, what's, what do you think the greatest thing you took away from that? I mean, what did you learn about yourself, our planet and people in general? Um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it is a very unique experience. Uh, I was, you know, you get, you get a number once you accomplish it. I, we were the 60th group to ever spend a winter at the South Pole. I specifically was the 1,459th person to spend a winter at the South Pole. Uh, you know, by now, there's probably there's still less than 2,000 people that have ever done it. Um, I think the greatest thing that I took away from it personally 
was that now anytime I'm faced with challenges in my life and, you know, and, and new things uh, and unfamiliar territory, I can always look back on that experience and know that if I was able to do that, I can accomplish anything I set my mind to. And getting those mental barriers out of the way is it's a really liberating feeling. I mean, it, it's how I've ended up in the position I'm in now living in, in Medellin and, and the new challenges I'm taking on was that once you get through a, a scenario like that, you know that pretty much if you can do that, you can do anything. And that's, that's a great way to live. Well, I know you don't have to get, before we drop this, one more time, there's people out there wondering, uh, you don't have to give any numbers or anything, but I mean, was the pay decent? The pay's good. It's, it's not great. Uh, because the levers they have is that everybody wants to go oh. and only very few make it. Does everybody want to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, true, true. Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot more reasonable people out there in the world who co- think it's completely insane and would never want to do what I did. But the people that do want to go, they really want to go. I mean, it takes a special breed and so, and they know that. So on one hand, it wasn't the best money I've ever made, but on the other hand, I did not pay for food. I did not pay for housing. And there was nowhere to go to spend any money. So for 12 months, every two weeks, a paycheck hit my bank account. So I have absolutely no complaints. It allowed, me, it allowed me to pay off all of my debts. It allowed me to save enough money to be able to start my own company and know that I could keep traveling the world, which was the plan to begin with. And without it, I would probably still be back in Annapolis uh, working the same job that I had before. So, okay, now that we're here, let's talk about Medellin a little bit, or Medellin. I don't know what, the, I'm going to drink one of your signature beers. Cheers. So, now you go from the, from the South Pole to opening up a, the 20 Mission Brewery, 20 Mission Cerveza, I should say, in, uh, in Medellin. So, uh, first of all, the name, you told me why, how it got its name last night. And we were trying to guess why it got the 20 Mission name. And it turns out the answer is uh, a lot more boring than we had hoped. So go ahead. Why is it 20 Mission Cerveza? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's not a good story. I think I, I, think I, I, think I need to make... Let's, let's make a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to need to make something up moving forward. <laughs> what it is, uh, my business partner, Jared Kenna, is the owner and founder of uh, 20 Mission San Francisco. And that is, it was an old 41-room hotel on the corner of 20th and Mission in the Mission District. It was an old rundown hotel um, full of homeless people and drug addicts. He bought it dirt cheap, kicked everybody out, renovated the whole place. And it was the first place uh, of what is now a huge trend of co-living, co-working spaces. And the idea was to make it basically like a big tech incubator where everybody lived together, everybody could work together, they could share ideas Um, a lot of big companies have come out of that place and it was sort of the first of its kind. Um, and so when he wanted to start the beer company down here, he wanted to keep that same brand. So that's the name. Yeah. Amazing story. You know, what, what was your beer background and were you into like home brewing and craft brews even before you started this or is this like a whole new territory for you? The brewing side of it is actually all new for me. So my background is the restaurant and bar industry, which I've been in since I was 14 years old. Uh, he had decided when he started the company that he wanted to have a craft brewery. And because of that, he also wanted to have a restaurant and bar. So he reached out on, uh, actually a friend of his reached out on Facebook asking if anybody with restaurant and bar experience was willing to do some consulting work to help them set up the company. That guy was a guy that I had gone to high school with a mutual friend of ours saw that and said, you need to look up Darby. That's, literally what he does. He's now gone to Antarctica to do it. And he started 
an international restaurant consulting company, you should give them a call. So uh, we linked up on, uh, through a Facebook message, and then um, they sent me an email. I replied explaining that I was kind of stuck where I was, because at the time I was at the South Pole. But uh, Literally stuck, not metaphorically, and metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, I was, any way you can imagine, I was stuck. I was stuck and I wasn't going anywhere. So uh, Satellite came around, used the sat phone to make a phone call to them. Uh, several times, did some interviews. They liked what I had to say. They asked me to start doing some remote consulting for them. So down there, that was a nice distraction and side project. I started sending them emails about uh, business plans, kitchen designs, restaurant designs, menu layouts, all that. They were pleased with that. They asked if when I left Antarctica, if I wanted to come to Columbia to do on-site consulting for two months. I told them I would, but I was going to travel for a while first because... <laughs> Let me tell you, when you, when you leave the South Pole after eight, eight and a half months of isolation, you're not right in the head. No, I don't, I, yeah, I don't care who you are. You need to reacclimate to society. Yeah. You need to figure out how to function. I mean, when I, when I got off the plane after leaving Antarctica, I got off the plane in Christchurch, New Zealand, and smelling rain, mm-hmm. feeling pavement. Like you, I mean, it's just all your senses. Like You've been de- so deprived of everything for so long, you don't even realize it. And you're just... You know, looking both ways before you cross the street. What happens to things like your allergies and stuff like that? Because you're in this contained, it's like being literally in an airplane or something, like forced air and all that stuff. Do you get ultra, did you, were you more sensitive to like smells and, and like were you sneezing? Did you get sick? Uh, Do you get colds easier? I mean, does your immune system, what happens? Yeah. So you're, you know, you spend that long in a pristine environment, your body lets its guard down. Uh, so I got back to New Zealand and the first night was amazing. They put you up in a hotel and I was out on a balcony and it was pouring down rain and it was just amazing. And then within a couple of days I got really sick and I had a nasty cold for about two weeks because yeah, you're, you know, like I said, you let your guard down and everything comes after you at that point. You've been sick the whole time I've been here. See, I don't know if you've uh, fully recovered. I think the thing got you down there. And by the way, they don't have that movie in the, uh, in the library there at the station, do they? Oh, they do. <laughs> they do. So there's... there's versions? Well, all right. There's a few different ones. Yeah, okay. So now we're going to get into some good stuff here. <laughs> there's a tradition. Uh, there, there's... All right, I'm going to tell you about three traditions at the South Pole during the winter. When the last plane leaves and you close the door and you look around, you realize that you're stuck with those people for the next eight and a half months. It's, uh, you know, part of my language, but it's a no shit moment. Oh, yeah. And... The tradition is that night, the very first night when you're all left there alone, we go into the gym, we set up the big screen, and we watch back-to-back all three versions of the thing. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's, that's great. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a good way to start your winter season. Uh, it's like, hey, here you are. You're screwed. Watch these three movies. Try not to freak out. Which one's your favorite? I, I go with the Kurt Russell version. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's age related or, or what, yeah. but that's, that's where I identify, you know? Yeah. So, all right. The next tradition is there's midwinter and that is when you've reached the halfway point of your winter where you know that it's, it's, a, it's shorter to keep going than it is to go back, even though you can't go back. <laughs> and for that, you get together in the gym, you throw a big dinner and you have a, you have a big party. And then after that, you get together in the gym and you watch the shining. yeah so that's you know just when you think that you're doing fine and you're not going crazy you watch the shining and realize that you got another you know four and a half months to go so that's that's a good one 
All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. So uh, down here in, everybody knows in Medellin's reputation in the 80s, and the people here, I mean, from the ones I've talked to, I've had some guides and saying, you know, how they really, it hurts them. You know, they want to move on, and they, they have moved on amazingly from what it was. So in the, you've been here about three years, right? Yeah. So what is the impression of the city you've gotten? And for people who've never been here, how do you sell it to them? It's, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have traveled a lot. And so a lot of what mainstream media sells you and, and what you see on Netflix and shows like Narcos and stuff, I never really, I like to go, I mean, as you know, I've, I've gone to some pretty random places. I like to see places for myself. I try not to judge ahead of time. But for most people, including myself, for years, my entire life, I've had one impression of Columbia. And it's Narcos. Yeah. It didn't take Netflix for me to have that impression, you know? Yeah, we saw Scarface in high school. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, you know, so I, I had some opinions coming in, and I found it to be the exact opposite. This city is changing by leaps and bounds. Uh, the food scene, how it's changed in the three years that I've been here has been amazing. The craft beer scene is just emerging. It's like what craft beer was in the United States 20, 25 years ago. Um, the city technologically is advancing and it's just a beautiful, wonderful city. And so when people ask me about it, you know, obviously when I told people I was moving here, oh my God, you know, isn't it dangerous? Are you going to be okay? Like, you know, oh, you're going down there to just do a bunch of cocaine. And, and uh, you know, really what I tell people is forget all the stereotypes. Come here, come here with, with a fresh perspective and, and an openness. And if you can do that and you really see what this city has to offer, it is just an amazing place. The weather's perfect year round. It's the second most biodiverse country on the planet. It's the, it's known, this specific area is known as having the friendliest people on the planet. And I mean, you just can't go wrong. There's, it's beautiful nature, beautiful mountains, beautiful and wonderful people, perfect weather. There's, you know, very low cost of living. There's really nothing to complain about. I've talked to a number of uh, digital nomads here and bloggers and things like that. And this is a hot new town for people to move. And so just in the last three years, have you seen the number of expats just shoot up? It has definitely, definitely, Uh, you know, travel and leisure and a bunch of those magazines keep putting this as like, you know, the number one tourist destination for 2020. And that has its good and its bads. You know, you, you get, you get the tourists that you don't want. Um, but I've seen the expat community really building up and, and with a lot of great people, a lot of people that appreciate what this city has to offer, what this country has to offer. And, um, and people that not only embrace that, but want to contribute to it or give back to it. And, and seeing that quality of, of expat community, uh, building up here is, is really a positive sign moving forward. Well, blogging in your apartment or a coffee shop is one thing, but opening a giant brick-and-mortar business. And this place is huge. You're in a huge warehouse here. you got a brewery. you got a restaurant. you got a bar. It's, uh, and it's beautiful, by the way. But what have been the uh, biggest challenges to opening up a business in not just Medellin, but Colombia? And, and what's the difference between that and, say, running a restaurant back home? Yeah, so it's... Uh you know, you're right. The, the digital nomads, the people that work online, they got it easy. It's great. You know, you can live in paradise where you're spending Colombian pesos while you're making U.S. dollars online, you know, teaching English to kids in China. And, and that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, opening a brick and mortar shop in this country, the challenges, man, there are a ton of them. You know, right off the bat, um, myself and my business partners, we're outsiders. That's all there is to it. 
whether we like it or not, we're gringos from another country trying to navigate what for us is uncharted waters. So that in itself inherently has a lot of challenges. Uh, those are the challenges I like, though. That's where you're, you're pushing yourself to your limits and you're learning a lot and, and, and you're, you know, you're really forced to, to, to do your best. Uh, the challenges that aren't fun, and I'll just be completely honest about it, is the Colombian government. Um, I was going to say corruption, which is usually the problem in most of these. You know, I have friends that open up businesses in Mexico and, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. Same kind of thing. You know, all of a sudden you get a visit from the quote unquote building inspector who uh, <laughs> very interested in what you're doing. <laughs> and his brother happens to be the mayor and he's very interested in, yeah, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I, I would think that'd be so frustrating. That's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, one, it's a developing country. Um, two, as a result of, of U.S. drug policy, it saw itself in civil war for over 50 years. Um, it is all about relationships and who you know. Culturally, that's just a part of their culture. It's, it's really all about relationships. You add in a developing country, and then you add in an extremely corrupt government, and that means that you don't just have to try to open doors. You have to try to break down walls, especially when they look at you. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, I'm a very white guy with blue eyes. I don't tan well. You don't blend. You don't blend here. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's, that's the biggest thing, the government corruption, the need for having the proper connections. It's, there, there were things that I would try to accomplish where I fill out all the paperwork, I pay all the fees, I make sure everything is perfect, and it always gets kicked back and kicked back and kicked back. Then all of a sudden, you're out to dinner and you get introduced to somebody and they say, oh, well, I know somebody. And then a couple phone calls happen and all of a sudden, all your problems are solved. And you start to realize, like, it's not about doing things ex perfectly the right way and paying the fees. It's about who you know and how you can properly expedite certain situations. And... Uh, that's, you know, that's a steep learning curve. Right. Sounds like the uh, Chicago where I, <laughs> I, knew, I knew where I'm from. I knew guys who owned bars there. That wasn't much different, really, now that I look back. But yeah, no, to an extreme, it's got to be frustrating. But have you found that people are taking to, the, to what you're doing here and, and the, not just the beer, but the food and everything else? Yeah, it's, you know, it's going over really well. Um, we were able to crush all of our projections for our first year, which was, which was very exciting and, and is a good sign for the future. It's still challenging, though, because the craft beer scene in this country is at a point now where people are very interested, people want it, but it's in its early stages. And so we're not out to compete and we're not out to try to be better than other people. We're here to create the market, which means that you don't just have to find the consumers and sell to the consumers. You have to educate the consumers. And so you've got to put a lot more work into building the culture, supporting the other people that are in the business. And really, it's, it, it's in the early stages now where we're all trying to help each other and we're all trying to educate the consumer as opposed to just producing a product and then putting it on the market, selling it and making money. Uh, which is, it's challenging, but it's very rewarding because we're not really following other people. We're not really trying to, you know, get our piece of the pie. We're, we're sort of the leaders in the industry and, and we're, you know, we're the thought creators here and, and, and we're, we're a part of creating something and, and leaving our mark. So it, it definitely, you know, there's, there's that additional payback that makes it, that makes all the government bullshit and everything else a lot more worth it because you feel like you're really creating something which which for me you know has an extra value that you really just can't put a number on
Is the hardest thing uh, in a country like Colombia, where a lot of the locals really don't don't have the money to to get a nice craft beer in a big beautiful place, and and when you're setting price points, do do you look at it and go, okay, we're going to have to go mostly for like a more of an expat market, or I mean, you're in a higher rent area right now, so. I mean, was targeting the locals and getting them involved farther down the line, or is it like something you think about when you're setting prices? So we kind of went against the the standard thinking. The standard thinking is, yes, you go over the, after the expats, you go for the hostels, you go for the backpackers, you go for the people that already know that they want an IPA and they have that and they have that money. Our thought, though, is that we're in a valley here. We're in a city with 3 million people. We're in a valley with 4 million people. There's about 3,000 expats. So I would rather long-term go after 3 million people than go after 3,000 people. The other thing is that, uh, you know, I said there is a great expat community here, but let's be honest, Colombia is still known for drugs. Colombia is still the world's number one producer of cocaine. <laughs> Prostitution's legal. The women are beautiful. And so there's a lot of people that come here for the wrong reasons. And if you go after that gringo market and you attract and you attract the wrong ones, no Colombian will ever step foot in your business again. And that, to me, was a very short-sighted view. So even though Colombia has its economical problems and there's the lower class and the upper class and there's not much middle class, what we've targeted is the upper middle class Colombians with disposable income, mainly between 25 and 35 years old. And that is an emerging market. There's a lot of well-educated people, people with more of a worldview, people that are bilingual, people that have traveled to Europe. And they're young and they're enthusiastic and they want what the world has to offer, not just what Colombia has had over the last 50 years of civil war. And so we're bringing that to them. And we found that they are very into it. They want to learn. They don't know it. So there's, like I said, there's that education angle. But there's a growing market here of people that want international experiences and they have the money to pay for it. And so that's the demographic that we went after. Um, and it turned out to be the right bet. How was your Spanish before you got here and how is it now? So, you know, I've been in the restaurant and bar business my whole life. So, so you do kitchen Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. My kitchen Spanish is great. If it comes to food, I know it all. If it comes to cussing you out a million different ways and telling you things that you can go do or, or things about your, your family and friends, I can do that too. Yeah, I grew up in kitchens. What surprised me though was that for a long time, the majority uh, kitchens in the US, it's going to be that you're working with either Mexicans or El Salvadorians. Uh, where I'm from, it's mainly a large Mexican population. So my Spanish is all based in Mexican Spanish. That's what they told me in Spain. They said I sound like a Mexican when I try to speak it there. Exactly. So of course, that's all the Spanish I've heard my whole life. I live in America. Exactly. So I showed up to Colombia thinking I know Spanish and your everyday terms, just your common greetings and, and your casual slang and this and that. I was speaking that thinking that I would be able to fit right in while I learned more Spanish. And they're all looking at me like, where did this white boy from Mexico come from? Like, they're like, you know, yeah, they thought I was a, a Mexican gringo and it, and they're all giving me funny looks. So I thought I knew what I was doing. And then I realized I had to scrap it all and start from the beginning. Well, well, they do say that the Colombian accent is a good one to learn or learn from because it's very, it's, I just say, people have said it's the purest form or it's just, clean. it's a very clean, simple kind of thing. It's not like when I went to Buenos Aires and it was the craziest accent that I've ever, that one I was lost. That one I, I'm, but I will tell people though, coming here, I've, I'll, I realize how lazy I've been 
when I travel because if you stay to more touristy places, even whether it's Spain or Costa Rica or Panama that have a bigger tourist infrastructure, basically everybody's bilingual that you're going to deal with in hotels and restaurants and things like that. Here, I've just stayed in two hotels where nobody spoke any English, even the front desk and stuff like that. So I really had to get cracking on it. So I wish, so I will we'll warn that knowing at least a little basic Spanish will help you down here. And have you gotten pretty, pretty fluent? I've gotten pretty good. Um, I've gotten pretty good. I get by just fine. I'm completely comfortable with my Spanish, but I'm not going to sit around with my friend's grandmother and have lengthy, detailed conversations about complex topics for hours at a time. Uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge for me was that I came down here right away to work. You know, back to what I said, they asked me if I wanted to come down and do two months of consulting. That was three years ago. That's how amazing this place is. I showed up to do two months of consulting, get my money, and then continue traveling the world with my consulting business. And instead, I went all in, became a partner, and, and here I am three years later. That's how amazing this place is. But yes, it's, you know, like you, I've traveled to a lot of developing countries all over the world. But a lot of those countries have, have seen such a large revenue stream in tourism that they put forth a lot of extra effort to learn English or to at least have a couple English employees. And so I've never really had to get that far out of my comfort zone in terms of other languages. Um, I got down here and I realized that is just not the case. No. <laughs> not only are the, are the Paisas, which is the, the name of, of the locals in the Antioquia region where Medellin is, um, the Pisces are an extremely proud people. They are the nicest, kindest, most, some of the most loving people I've ever met on planet Earth, and I've been to quite a few places. But if you don't put forth some effort to learn some Spanish ahead of time, and then you don't continue your effort while you're down here, you're not going to have nearly as good of a time as you could. Um, it, it really is it's where you need to step out of your comfort zone. You need to put in that effort if you really want to get to know the city. I learned a word, chimba. Which is a local word. What, it means like a million different things. It could be an insult. It could be something good. What does chimba mean? It's, yeah, it, it's, that's a word that really depends on the context. I mean, it can be anything from like cool yeah. to fun to, it, yeah. It, a cuss word, like you're angry. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's all about the tone and the inflection that you put behind it. I mean, people say, que chimba. It's like, how cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's other ways of saying it. You know, we're basically, you know, it's like WTF. It's a, so yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag. And that, you know, that's another thing about Colombia is that I was just recently up on the coast. I was in Barranquilla and up there, common greetings in regular terms, people look at you again, like you're weird. They use different slang in Bogota than they use in Medellin, than they use in Cali, than they use in Cartagena. Yeah. It's, 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 there's a lot of regional dialect and, um, man, it's a constant challenge. It's a constant challenge. So you've seen a lot of this country. And aside from uh, Medellin, and this is the only place I've been so far. So what are the other highlights if people are thinking of coming here and have more time that I'm giving myself? Aside from Medellin, where do they need to go? Um, let's see. If you, know, if you don't have much time and you just come to Medellin, I would say that you, you plan a couple of weekends to get out to some of the smaller pueblos. Uh, I know you had a, an opportunity to go to Guatape. Yeah. Uh, which is beautiful, and it gives you a sense of what that small town feel is. But it's also just an hour and a half outside of the city, and so it's very touristy. It's tourist-oriented, and even just local tourists. It's, it's where people get away for the weekend. Um, but you go to some of the small mountain towns and stuff where, you know, obviously the whole town is built around the, the, the church and the town square. Um, 
And it's just, it's a completely different pace of life. It's just absolutely beautiful. And that's, that's the main thing that I would recommend to people is that one, you know, it's an extremely diverse country. So you can go to Cartagena and you can see the Caribbean coast. You can go to Bogota and you can be up in the mountains where it's cold and rainy all the time, but it's the most international feel there because it's the largest city. Then you can go to the Pacific coast where it's jungle and it's whale watching. You can go down into the Amazon, uh, which is amazing. You can, there's, you can go to a desert. You can come here to, to Medellin, which is at 5,000 feet in the mountains. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing for people to know is that if you're going to spend some time traveling in Colombia, get outside of the big cities to see how biodiverse this country is, see the different landscapes, the nature, the beauty of, of, of that. That's what I've loved the most. And then culturally, I've just never been a big city guy. So I think taking the time to explore some small towns for a couple of days at a time really is a, it's a, it's a cultural experience on a whole other level than just going to a large metropolitan city. Well, I've been here a week, and after eating all week in uh, Colombia, can you guess what my first meal back is going to be? It's going to involve a lot of green vegetables, because, brother, I have not seen many. And if I eat one more deep-fried thing here, I mean, what aside? Okay, there's empanadas, there's pizza, and there's a lot of deep-fried stuff. What else do, uh, do I have to eat before I leave? Could you help me out here? So here's the thing. Uh, before you leave, you don't have to eat any more Colombian food. And Thank you. Again, I'm going to be brutally honest, right? Like no, no place is perfect. And, and I've never liked the, the travel blogs and the things like that that are just almost like a paid advertisement of why you should go somewhere. I, I believe in just telling people, telling it how it is. And my entire, you know, I'm in the food and beverage industry, but the, the basis, the core of my career has been as a chef. And the number one thing that I could say is a negative about Colombia is the food sucks. <laughs> that's that, that's it right you have more amazing tropical fruits and herbs yeah, the fruit is good the, the, yeah is. the fruit's amazing right but like if you put if, if you cook a if you cook a steak for for your girlfriend's parents and you use black pepper on it they're gonna say it's too spicy right you know if you cook it a perfect medium rare they're gonna say why didn't you cook this it's, uh, but again, it's changing. Uh, I might, you know, through my influence and the influence of, of some other international chefs that have come down here, the amount of food offerings in this city has skyrocketed in the last three years. There are more Indian restaurants now. When I showed up, there was one. Uh, when I showed up, there was one Thai restaurant. And I'm not sure that you can actually call it Thai food because you'd offend a lot of people. <laughs> Uh, there's, I now know at least six different Thai restaurants that I would eat at. There's a Vietnamese restaurant that was never here before. The amount of Asian food offerings here, uh, Indian food offerings, Middle Eastern food offerings, inter just international cuisine has skyrocketed over the last three years. So it, it's changing. Um, the city is opening itself up to tourism. It's opening itself up to international experiences. And I really look forward to the future of what the next three to five years are going to bring. But as of right now, if you're going to South, if you're doing a South America trip, come to Colombia for the diversity of its terrain and the nature and the people, and then go to Peru for the food. <laughs> really, Peru? Because I had guinea pig in Peru, but uh, I liked in Lima there was ceviche, which really stands out, and and a lot of the seafood. But Peru, I don't remember much other than uh, yeah, I had the guinea pig. <laughs> what was it about Peru that you liked? Uh, well, let's see. In Peru, um, the, the world's 50 best list for 2019 came out uh, back in October. Um, 
three of the top 10 restaurants in the world are in Lima, Peru. I actually was lucky enough to just go have dinner at all three of them. Oh, uh, how nice. Months ago. But, uh, research. You wrote this off the business, of course. You were doing research. Absolutely. It's yeah. research and development. It's, I'm it's, writing this off just because I'm doing this. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> We're sitting around having beers and talking. Yes. You've made a career out of it. Might as well write it off. Um, you know, If you look at the world's 50 best list just for Latin America, it's overwhelmingly all in Peru. The, um, Peru is the cuisine capital, capital of South America. It's more than just ceviche, which is absolutely amazing, by the way. Absolutely amazing. You know, I live 5,000 feet up in the mountains. Seafood. Seafood is still, again, something I miss. You know, I'm from the Chesapeake Bay, and I keep moving to these places that have no seafood. Uh, but no, uh, Peru, Peru is absolutely amazing country. Uh, the, food, the food in Lima is phenomenal. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who ask me for advice about doing a Machu Picchu trip, and all I tell them is don't rush and get there and do Machu Picchu and then leave. Spend a couple of days in Lima, see the food scene. It is literally, by all measures, world class. Well, for someone who's been all over the world and, uh, you know, we've been, you know, I don't know if you're up to 100 countries now, and not that I'm a counter, but I'm starting to count. I think because I'm, I'm close to 100. And I think I might have passed it this year, but I remember. What's left for you and what's, uh, I'll, I'll use the hack term, bucket list, but if you have some place you're dying to go? Yeah, uh, the unfortunate answer to that question is everywhere. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, like I said, you know, back to the question about how my Spanish is, I moved down here, I moved down here for two months to work and then I stayed on as a partner. And so I've been so focused on work over these last three years and I work with other English speakers that I haven't gotten to immerse myself enough in just speaking Spanish. And so that's where I think my Spanish lacks. Um, at, on the same note, I want to see the rest of South America. Uh, I've been to Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia, but all the rest, all the South of South America, I still need to get to. I need to you find been to Brazil or Argentina. Nope. Well, I haven't. Yeah. I will say the Argentina uh, menu is very similar to up here. Empanadas, pizza, steak. And man, is it, I hope you like steak, brother, because it's a lot of it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know they have a very, very meat-heavy diet, much like Colombia does. Yeah. But I think the difference is that they actually do it right with the steaks. And I hate to say that, but, you know, in Colombia, you get a steak. And I'm like, you know, like the, the cow is already dead. You didn't have to kill it twice. <laughs> But then you go down to Argentina and, you know, I mean, you look at like Chef's Table, the Francis Malman episode, and it's, you know, the whole roasted animals over a live fire at, you know, at the foothills of the mountains and the, and the amazing wine in Mendoza. And Plus the wine is, is very good. So you got that. That, that eases a lot and it's cheap. So yeah. good. Enough $5 bottles of wine. That steak's going to taste great no matter what, you know? I mean, that's, that's part of why we're making beer here. It makes all the food taste better. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I know you got to get to work, and, and uh, I got to go too because uh, you know I got to get ready. I leave tomorrow, but that was um, no having experienced all this and going all around the world and living in different places. What have you learned about yourself and about the planet and people in general? Um, you know, being from the U.S., I guess my answer to this question is going to be sort of weighted by what's going on there politically and, and all of the division that's been created and all of the turmoil. What I've found, uh, I've traveled a lot, as we've discussed. Uh, I'm now full-time living abroad in a foreign country, which has reinforced the one thing I always found when I traveled. And the one thing that I love the most about traveling is that 
when you take out governments and you take out politics and you break down borders and you sit down one-on-one with people, the human race is, is amazing. Really, at the end of the day, if you can break bread and share a drink with another person, what you'll find out is that you have more in common uh, than you don't. It's that at the end of the day, truly all anybody wants is to just be happy. And that's something we all have in common. And when we break down you know, all those things in the way and we break down all those borders, it shows you that that's what really everybody wants and everybody really can just get along as cheesy as it may sound. And I have found that you know, being an outsider, being out of my comfort zone uh, has only reinforced that. And that, uh, you know, that gives me hope. That's a very positive thing. In terms of the travel aspect, it's it's what I always believed, and it's 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 you know sort of the catchphrase that you know the travel bloggers will tell you and stuff is it's it really is taking that first step. I spent well over a decade promising myself I would one day sell everything I own and leave home. It literally it took a decade for me to finally do it, and it was the best decision I ever made in my life. And uh, for anybody else. You know, people are like, oh, well, you know, I can't quit my job or, oh, I have my debt or, oh, I've got the mortgage where there's a will, there's a way. And, and when you do it, it's man, the reward is, is just amazing. I mean, you know that. Oh yeah. But I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, giving me advice before I came in on here and thank you for a great meal last night and thanks for the beer. I said, we go have another one. What do you think? That sounds great. Uh, you know, a couple things before we go. Um, oh, yeah. Get your plugs in. Get your website in and, uh, you, you know, anything where, where people can find you out there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's 20 Mission Cerveza. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. But in terms of the travel life, it's, it's my passion. It's what I love the most. I was more than happy to give you advice before you were coming down because it just energizes me and it excites me to travel more. So if anybody that listens to this, you know, thinks they want to come visit Columbia or wants any travel advice or whatever, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Shoot a message. I'll give you my personal email address. I'm happy to answer anybody's questions. You know, any advice I can give, any travel tips, whatever. I just love traveling. I love helping to inspire other people to travel. Uh, the one thing I did want to say, though, before we go, is I told you that there were three traditions at the South Pole. Oh, yeah. And I told you about two of them. The third one's the one that they tell you you're not supposed to speak about. It's called the 300 Club. Oh. So in the station, we have a sauna. And what you do is in the dead of winter, there are times where the temperature will dip below negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So you set the sauna to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And you sit in the sauna... I chose to do it with some Jameson. Sure. And you sit in there for about half hour. You sit in a 200-degree sauna for a while. And then uh, you leave the sauna. You strip down to nothing but your boots. You run outside of the station to the actual uh, geographic marker of the South Pole. You run around it, which means that you have just circumnavigated the planet and gone through all 24 time zones. And then you run back inside. So completely... It's extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. It's not sanctioned. You're not supposed to do it. You get in a ton of trouble if you get caught. You're not supposed to talk about it if you've done it. It's sort of the unspoken tradition. But basically, you strip ass naked and you undergo a 300-degree temperature change in a matter of two minutes. And that's called the 300 Club. And there's only about 500 people that have ever done it. I was uh, lucky enough and stupid enough to be one of the people that did it. Uh, The guy that was running next to me tripped and fell into the snow. That does not end well. No. So be very careful about where you're going. You have boots, and then you have your uh, you have your camping light on. Yeah, you have a headlamp on. Um, you don't. Let's just say you do not want to fall down. Oh, 
But uh, was he all right? He was all right. He did, you know, he wasn't very happy. He had a bad time, but he made it. How, how long does that take to leave from door to door, door around the South Pole and back? How, well, how much time are we talking? Uh, the entire run is about three and a half minutes. Uh, the amount of time you're outside is about two minutes. Um, and, you know, going from positive 200 Fahrenheit to below negative 100 Fahrenheit, that temperature change, that'll let you know you're alive. Uh, but if you don't do it quick, it'll also let you know that you're then dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is a story that nobody I've ever talked to has. So well done, man. Uh, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for doing this. And come to, oh, say the website where people can find... 20 Mission Cerveza. www.20missioncerveza.com. That's it? That's the easiest. Okay, we'll have links to that too. Yeah, on, uh, on our site. And uh, all right, man, let's go get a beer. I'm not running naked outside. No. Well, we'll see after. Yeah. I'm not ruling anything out. <laughs> Thanks, man.